First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Tuesday, February 5th, 2019, from Slated to the Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. It has been widely and accurately reported that Donald Trump does not know how a dog works. Some examples, Eric Erickson got fired like a dog from Red State. Mitt Romney had his chance to beat a failed president, but he choked like a dog. David Gregory fired like a dog, Glenn Beck fired like a dog, Reverend Wright dumped like a dog by Barack Obama. But there is another holder of high office, though not as high, who has a fundamental misunderstanding of how a fairly simple thing works. He is the governor of my state, New York, a fellow by the name of Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo. And the thing he does not understand is a pun. A few months ago, we on The Gist collected some of his utterances, which he said were puns, but clearly were not puns. To wit, which is a toast that I would not use for Andrew Cuomo. But back then, I highlighted this statement, as read by former GIST producer, who was since poached by What Next, excellent slate show, still smarts to loser, Mary Wilson. Anyway, here's Mary reading a direct quote that Andrew Cuomo gave. This is an important topic. It's a hotly debated topic. Pardon the pun. And it'd be nice to have some facts in the middle of the debate once in a while. No pun. Now today, Andrew Cuomo was on radio station WNYC with Brian Lair and said this. Donald Trump's divisive tax reform plan that he put into effect. And uh, I've been talking about this until I'm blue in the face, pardon the pun. Not a pun. Not a pun. Just not a pun. And I want to thank Alert Just listener Mark Dore for tweeting that to me. So now I know. Thank you, Mark Dore, for alerting us to that open and shut case, which is a pun. A pun that hinged on Mark Dore's last name, Dore, which is also a pun. But what Cuomo said is not a pun. Now, I want to make an offer to Andrew Cuomo. If he does ever get a pun right, I will pay him one pound British sterling. Let us call it a quid pro Cuomo, which is also technically not a pun, but an extremely clever play on words. On the show today, I spiel about the State of the Union guests. But first, Lauren Greenfield is a photographer and a documentarian who has been chronicling the ultra-wealthy in Los Angeles and their discontents. She's been at it so long that she has pictures of a 12-year-old Kim Kardashian when the strength of the Kardashian brand was that the dad was slightly infamous. In Lauren Greenfield's new documentary, Generation Wealth, she looks back at decades of work and finds that the rich do get richer, but not any more content. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity, using 
the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Lauren Greenfield is a photographer, a filmmaker, and yeah, a sociologist. She made the documentary about the largest privately owned single family dwelling in America, The Queen of Versailles. Her other films include Thin, Kids and Money, Hashtag Like a Girl. And she has a new book and a new movie that's out on Amazon Prime called Generation Wealth. She has been chronicling the rich and the ultra rich and the nouveau rich and the wannabe rich, but don't know how to get there since she grew up amongst them. Hello, Lauren. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. So I, we haven't met before this moment, but I looked back at your career and I've seen a few of your documentaries before. Tell me if I'm wrong. At some point you said to yourself, it would be nice to have a trilogy of documentaries called Thin, Rich, and Pretty. Yes or no? <laughs> no. <laughs> Damn. You're much- Good so, idea, but you're the first, I, first a little, time I, I don't know if it's a good idea. It's kind of an on the nose idea. So, Although I think you can never be too rich or too thin. That's what believe. they- See, but the thing about that is you can never be too rich or too thin. No one believes the too thin thing now. I mean, I mean, the people you chronicled who have anorexia, but even they wouldn't consciously believe it, right? Do people well, in really my work, that? you can definitely see that you can be too thin of course. and you can be too rich and too much of anything <laughs> is probably not a good idea. Well, let's talk about that. I think that you can be too thin because obviously you'll starve to death, but can you be too rich? You deal with a lot of people who can't handle their richness or can't handle the quest for richness or think they can, but you maybe show they can't. But what about the people who seem to be using it well? What about the people who don't talk to you because they're, they're well-adjusted? They don't need what you're bringing to them, which is some sort of outlet. I mean, Ginny Bloomberg or Jordan Schultz, right? The scions of these great billionaires. They seem well-adjusted. I mean, I can't speak for the people that I didn't interview or photograph or film, but I can say that as a culture and as a society, when there's this much inequality, it has a negative effect also on um, the economy. Yes. But I think one of the categories, you mentioned the wannabes, but in a way that's what this whole series and film is about is the wannabes that their 1% are represented in the work because they have a huge, huge influence on the culture. But most of the people in the film and the book are not from the 1%. And what I really chronicled is this aspirational kind of cycle of addiction that crosses class, crosses race, crosses age, crosses border, and it ended up going to 17 countries. And how we're kind of all in the cycle of wanting more and never having enough. Don't some people get it right? Like wouldn't have gone to those. It's not as if every hedge fund billionaire goes to those excesses and therefore not every hedge fund billionaire or disgraced hedge fund billionaire gets disgraced and has to have the come to Jesus moment. Of course, it's much more interesting to capture them on film and in a movie, the ones that do. Well, of course. I mean, and the movie and the book is not about money being bad. I'm not saying like rich people. Although it's not a 
great advertisement for money being good. It's more about how, where it comes from, that there's a kind of what you see with all the characters is it's not just about money. It's also about beauty or image or sexuality or, you know, fake it till you make it or youth. Everybody's trying to have something they can't have and trying to be something they can't be. Right. And the thing about that game is you're never satisfied. And so for Florian, it's money, but for Kathy, it's surgery. And as right, and as you say about a lot of your characters, I think you use the word currency. Youth could be currency. Beauty can be currency. And it's a commod. What's currency but a commodification of what should be? I mean, you're not as heavy-handed with your message as I am being now, but it should be more of a human and humane values. And when you see the rest of the world, so you go to China and Manila, they're aping American culture, the excesses of American capitalism. And that was really the motivation for this project is kind of looking back over the 25 years and seeing in the pictures evidence of a kind of fundamental shift in the culture where the American dream had gone from something that valued hard work and maybe giving your kids a better life also connected to stability and community to something that was more about bling and celebrity and narcissism. Yes. Although, I wonder if we really were meticulous about it. Was there ever a time when it wasn't thus? I mean, it seems to me that the, you could write this about the Gilded Age and there was no documentary in there, but there was Trollope, right? You could write this about, or Edith Wharton, you could write this about every age that there seems to be this, you know, Gatsby and the green light. Yeah. It's the same themes over I mean, and over again. I think that there are similarities between this and the Gilded Age, and I tried to reference that in the movie and the book. There's a heavy use of gold. Yeah. There's a well, scene- in their lives, there is too. And in that one guy's 34 pounds of gold on his chest. <laughs> exactly. There's a scene of like dancing on gold um, glitter. But I think the thing that's different now and what I saw happen over the 25 years is it's like everything amplified on steroids. That one of the things that started when I began this journey was it was the beginning of MTV and that kind of homogenization of youth culture and ubiquity of materialistic values across class, across race. And that has blown up with the media blowing up and then with social media. So, well, I guess an anthropologist needs to be an outsider who ingratiates herself as an insider. So you weren't strictly doing anthropology. How did your entree or how did your knowledge of this subculture, I understand that it got you access, but did it in any way hurt or obscure what you were looking at, do you think? Well, first of all, I would say, and and my mom would definitely agree, that I'm not an anthropologist. Like, I would be operating right. without a license. I work in a way more like a part journalism, part art, part anthropology influence. Well, I guess my question is, but knowing what you know about them and probably saying, oh, this is normal, were there times where you had to realize, had to force yourself to say, ah, this isn't normal, this is something to take, or this would be perhaps (laughs) notable by someone without my uh, associations and assumptions? I mean, I think what I leaned into was actually my knowledge of the world. And I think that actually made me a better documentarian of it. And I had always been kind of an insider and an outsider. And that, I I tried to explain that also in the film, that when I was little and I went to a very fancy private school, my parents were, they didn't let me have all that stuff and they couldn't have afforded it anyway. And so I kind of fit in but didn't and had wanted the things that the other kids had and at the same time knew not only should they not be important, but that I had everything I needed. Like, 
there was no less than. And yet I felt that. And I think that is the kind of trick of capitalism and marketing that I tried to really explore in that work. Is it better? I would think, I mean, you know, this is just my priors uh, to be a little more subtle, but maybe you can make the argument that it's better not to be repressed or you have these scenes in the strip club. Maybe, well, what's the opposite of that? Like keeping all of our base instincts under wraps, you know, Saudi Arabia does that. It's not like it's not like they don't have extreme wealth and the excesses of extreme wealth in Saudi Arabia, but they also don't have the conspicuous public consumption. So maybe I don't know what the lesson there is, but if in one of your one of the theories or one of the theses in the movie is you study the extremes to tell you about the culture. There are other cultures which don't have those extremes and yet the culture seems to have something going on at its core that's pretty interesting. I mean, I think what we I think that in a way we've kind of lost sight of our values in this that in a way success and even material wealth used to be an expression of your contribution in some way. And now it's like however you get there mm-hmm. as long as you have it. It's mm-hmm. like mm. it's like the Kardashian effect like yeah. as long as you have this incre- and and the porn star Daphne talks about this as long as you have this lifestyle of fame and wealth it doesn't matter how you got there and if you don't have it fake it till you make it yeah. and it's so important that you see you know somebody like future or little magic talks about it with magic city in the in the film about you spend the money even if you don't have it because it's just all about the image and in a way that kind of um ideology is kind of what got us to the financial crash which is where i started right i think i guess it's all an overcorrection to something that was probably wrong in the beginning which is what is it the the 100 and lady astor and the idea that these were the moneyed families of new york we've made a list of them and then it doesn't matter how you've made your money even if it's by inventing somewhat something genius you're never going to be able to go into high society so there was this overcorrection to that, and now we're witnessing And that. in a way, that's where this project comes from, because when I grew up in L.A., my first project was about the French aristocracy. That's in the book. And I went there, and I was so surprised to learn about a class where there were elite without money. Yeah. And having grown up in L.A., money was the only class differentiation. I think the tragedy now and what the tragedy in the movie is and, and in what the work shows is that we've never had so little social mobility and so much inequality. So the idea of this fantasy is really just that, that it's a fantasy. And so in a way, this fictional social mobility, like bling, is the only social mobility that is in feels within reach. But don't you think, because this is how I think, that I don't have the money, but don't you think that there's a way to get cultural cachet without the money? It's by, do, it's by engaging in interesting work. I don't even mean just for us, but look at what you do and you and your husband have started, uh, you know, this girl culture films, which is developing films and TV products from female directors. Okay, I don't know if you're making millions or billions, and you're definitely making less than a lot of the people in your movie, but don't you have cultural cachet in the world that you care about, not about a world that you don't care about? I mean, I think the important thing is that you see in the movie that 
these chasing of these goals like money actually doesn't bring happiness and satisfaction. And what really does bring those things are connection with family and friends and love and also work, meaningful work. Right. So in the movie, I explore how even with that, you might need balance. But for me, doing meaningful work and kind of focusing on that does give me a little bit of an antidote to feeling that pull of generation wealth. And I made a a viral spot that was on at the Super Bowl a few years ago called Like a Girl. And it was a three-minute spot that kind of changed the meaning of those words. It ended up being seen by over 200 million people. And it was really exciting to see what kind of social impact that could have. And so that's that was kind of the beginning of thinking about this girl culture films company, which we just launched today, which is representing a roster of female directors for commercials and branded content. You ask your mom some pretty tough, but open-ended and fair questions in this. If one day Noah and what's your other son's name? Gabriel. Gabriel grow up to do essentially what you do and ask you the same questions, A, would you be okay with it? And B, what would you say? Well, in a way, this movie was turnabout as fair play for me because I, once I realized that I needed to be in it because I was going through things that in a way had commonalities with my subjects, I went in it thinking my work depends on this very intimate sharing of my subjects, not always looking their best, and I had to be willing to be in that same position. And so... I do have tough conversations with my mom, but Noah also has tough conversations with me. And Noah at one point says that I wasn't around enough when he was young and oh. and that the damage was done. <laughs> but and he got a perfect ACT score. What does one have to do with the other? <laughs> I don't know. This he seems didn't to share. be doing all right. I was really sad because- Did then, Kevin Cronin's kid get a perfect ACT score? He didn't know when he got that score. didn't even call me. Oh. And so, I mean, I think- that was what I was kind of interested in is like showing in a way what we pass on, not even consciously, and also how we can wake up from it. Like the movie does have hope. Noah says now our relationship has improved as a result of the movie and these conversations. That's good. Generation Wealth is the name of the film and the book. The filmmaker is Lauren Greenfield. Uh, she and her partner, Frank Evers, have also launched the Girl Culture Films, which is a production company that reps A-list directors uh, for commercial projects and films. And, and the last thing I'm going to say, if you want to watch a film that contains the quote, I'd like to keep on DJing, but I also love lizards. This is the film for you. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you. <laughs> I love that. And now the spiel. The State of the Union is a chance for the president to lay out his agenda, to use the apparatus of state and the trappings of the setting to make an affirmative case for where he wants America to go and by implication to give props to democracy itself. Here's how the White House understands that. Props. Human props. Oh, it's not just the White House. Nancy Pelosi is bringing four union heads, five anti-gun activists, celebrity chef Jose Andreas, whose celebrity is refusing to feed the beast as her guests. An undocumented worker recently fired by a Trump golf club will be the guest of Representative Bonnie Watson Coleman. Is that really smart? The one thing we know about this woman is that she's in this country illegally and you're putting her in the same room as Donald Trump and Stephen Miller? Let's rethink that. 
Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is inviting Anna Maria Archilla, the woman who got Jeff Flake, to change his mind on the elevator. The only thing is, that's not how it happened, according to This American Life's Zoe Chase. The first thing I want to talk about is the elevator, okay? It's a big story, how Jeff Flake changed his mind because two women accosted him on an elevator. I'm here to tell you that's not a true story. That's not what changed his mind. Look at me when I'm talking to you. You're telling me that my soul doesn't matter. I was there, right behind the women yelling. That woman was Archilla, and she may have achieved some form of heroism for an act that actually didn't have the impact some people think it did, but AOC calls her a shiro for her life's work in general, which is that she's a community organizer and the co-executive director of the Center for Popular Democracy Action. This brings us to the White House. In announcing their guests, they put out a press release calling these people who they've invited, quote, the very best of America. They represent the very best of America. That is the full quote. Here are the first three people on the list listed as the very best of America. Among the special guests invited by the president and first lady are three family members of Jerry and Sherry David. That's the Reno couple who was murdered in their South Truckee Meadows home last month. The accused suspect, Wilbur Ernesto Martinez Guzman, we're told, is an illegal immigrant. The daughter, granddaughter, and great-granddaughter of murder victims. That is what makes them the very best of America. Now look, their story is sad. I don't question their grief. I don't question their anger. Or if their grief and anger convince them to serve as human props. Of course, the policy that their presence supports is the mass deportation of millions of people, which would, of course, cause a lot of grief and anger. But I literally am not being snide. I don't blame these people at all. But what I will say to you here, and what no one else will say, is that being related to people who are murdered and being particularly vengeful against the class of person who is the accused murderer does not make you the very best. It makes you human. It is understandable. It is not laudable. It is not the most laudable. When all the serious intoners who cover the State of the Union show these people, or if they are mentioned in the speech itself, a tone of solemnity will attend to their circumstance. You will know that this is all nonsense. I bet most of the serious intoners will know that it's nonsense, but no one will feel emboldened to call out the nonsense as nonsense or to call out Trump's use of these human props as fundamentally inhumane. Perhaps some observers will note a dry but true statistic about how immigrants time and time again in study after study are shown to be less inclined to crime than the native-born population. And maybe they will dare to say that, but they will not dare to say what I am going to say next, which is this. In this context, in the service of Trump's agenda, these three generations of murder victim offspring are not sympathetic. They are propaganda. Then we get to this little guy. Joshua's father says the 11-year-old's last name is causing problems. He was getting ridiculed and bullied for the fact that his uh, last name was Trump. Yes, Joshua's last name is Trump. Again, sorry, Joshua Trump. Sorry for the bullying. You shouldn't have to put up with that. Guess what? Your 10-year-old classmates are jerks. It is a shame that you share the last name of a man who is so against bullying that he calls some of the people who are right there in that room with you 
Crying Chuck, Lion Ted, Adam Shit, Low IQ Maxine, Lamb the Sham, M13 Lover Nancy, Lil Marco, Crazy Bernie, Wacky Congresswoman Wilson, and Pocahontas. And don't let me start on what he calls the non-elected officials if he thinks they're an ugly lady. You don't deserve a kid, you really don't, but you also don't deserve to get lied to because some other jerkwad 10-year-old, and yeah, you could tell Connor I called him a jerkwad, because some other 10-year-old calls your name, it doesn't mean you are the very best of us. You are a 10-year-old who may one day look back on this experience and realize you are used as a human prop by a man who does not care about humans. Godspeed, Lil Trump. May you grow up to be nothing like your last namesake. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bien-Aimé and Daniel Schrader thought we should cut an ad to tout the top of the show in other GIST podcasts. We put it there and then listeners would say, wow, I'm missing out on something if I'm missing out on the GIST. But I told them that Cuomo promo FOMO is not a pun, but it's clever. It's very clever. TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcasts, where she tends to go on and on about the dangers of hypothermia until she's blue in the face, which is a pun. The GIST If I had one person to invite to the state of my union, it would be a little guy by the name of Joshua, low IQ, no talent, little rocket man. But you know what happened to him? He changed his name. So now he's known as Stephen, low IQ, no talent, little rocket man. God bless him. Oomperu, depperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.